Hey, it's such a privilege to come and be with you again. Uh, I've got a deep love for this church, and I love hanging out with Gareth, because we see eye to eye. Um, <laughs> I don't get that with a lot of people, but me and Gareth, we see eye to eye, so really blessed. And it's been great to know Gareth and Zoe over the years, Andrew um, uh, as well. Uh, I live not far from Aylesbury, so it's good to be here for that. And I'm really grateful you as a church helped us launch something called Books for Life. Um, and your team are just amazing. Uh, the team that helped make this place work are absolutely amazing. Could you just give them a round of applause? Because I'm really proud of them. So imagine it's 4.45 on a Friday afternoon and the phone rings and we can see from caller ID that it's social services. Now 4.45 on a Friday afternoon is a dangerous time to answer the phone to social services because we know the office is going to close in about 15 minutes and we know they're pretty desperate. And so we take the call and my wife and I are on this call and they say, Chris and Miriam, we, we know you've already got a lot of kids that live in your house, but is there any chance you could take another one? Now, my wife has already said yes. I could see that from her facial expression, but I, I'm a little bit more nervous. Uh, currently, we have six children that were living in the house, and this would be number seven. That was going to be difficult. So I just think I'll put out a little question. Well, okay, what can you tell us about this little person? And they said, I can't tell you much. All I can tell you is, he's a biter. <laughs> biter, that is totally not what you want to hear, is it? Biter is striking fear into every core fibre of my being. Because what does he bite? Does he bite stuff? I can, I can cope with him biting stuff. Our, our furniture's got loads of teeth marks on it already, mostly from our cat. But if he bites people, that's a bit more worrisome, isn't it? Because where's he been? What's he been exposed to? Is that safe for him to come into my house? Is he going to bite one of the other children? And then something goes off in my brain. Biter. That is an inadequate description of a human person, isn't it? You and I, we are more than the worst thing that we've ever done. Or the worst thing that's ever been done to us. When God looks at us, he doesn't just see our sin and our trouble and our brokenness. God sees something of beauty, of grace, something redeemable, and, something, and someone he can celebrate. So I didn't really have a choice, did I? So he said yes, and then he came into our lives. He bit loads of stuff, mostly sausages, which was totally okay as far as I'm concerned. But he turned our world upside down. Why did he bite? Well, he was three years old and he'd already had eight different families. He was uh, delayed in his speech and so maybe he just bit to let the world know that he's here and that he exists and that he matters. Friends, today I want to change your minds. I want to change the way you look at the children that are in our Kester system and the trouble and challenges that are going on right now, not, not on the other end of the world, but right here in this town. There's an invisible challenge that's going on and we, the church, I think, are called to engage in it. So I need to take you on a little journey to get there. You probably know that I launched a charity called Home for Good for exactly this purpose. We believe that every child in care 
deserves and needs a loving home, whether they buy it or not. Whatever their history, whatever their background, we believe God loves those kids. And we believe the church is called into action to take part. And so as I take you on that journey, I guess there's an end goal. I'd love to change your mind personally, but your mind as a church about how we respond. And uh, you can follow this journey along. If we're going to deal with some big, big issues. And um, if some of them are kind of too hard to track with today, the, the book God is Stranger that Gareth meant is where they get fleshed out a little bit more. And to be honest, I don't really want to sell it to you. I want to give it to you. Uh, there's an opportunity at the end. If you want to become a regular donor to support Home for Good, you can do that. Whatever amount you want to give. Some people give £2 a month because they're poor, penniless students. Other people give us £50 a month. Whatever God feels uh, leading you towards, that's what you go for. But we'd love to give you a book as a, as a thank you for that. But let me take you on the journey first and see where we are at the end. I need to show you a slide. And I hope we'll still be friends at the end of this slide. Trigger alert. Uh, could, you, could you move my slide? Yeah, okay, not that one. That's pretty safe, isn't it? That's God is Stranger. Oh, here we go. Uh, look at the shoe and the laces and just chat with your neighbour and ask them what colour the shoe and the laces are. Could, could you try that? It's a controversial question. Okay, feeling good? Uh, someone on this side, either the ground or balcony, uh, tell me what you see. Put your hand up. Yes, please, what do you see? Baby blue for what? The, the shoe or the laces? Oh, grey and blue. Great. Are the, is the shoe grey? And the laces blue, or is it the other way around? Uh, grey shoes, okay, good. Uh, anyone else see something different? Not yet, yeah, what do you see? Shoe is pink, laces are white. Vote. Who sees uh, pink? Who sees grey and blue? Whoa, weird. Doesn't matter which side you are, doesn't matter how old you are, doesn't matter how near the front or near the back you are. Give me another one a little more controversial. Okay. Who sees white and gold? White and gold, that proves you are probably in the right church. You are Anglican. Anglican see white dresses and gold crowns anywhere. Who sees blue and black? All right, you might be a Baptist. Because Baptists, we like water and blue, and maybe that's where it's coming from. It's weird, isn't it? No matter how hard you look, if you see white and gold, you can't make yourself see blue and black. There's something about you that you bring to this picture, that even though we're all looking at the same photo, we see something different. That is strange. Let me show you another picture, very controversial picture. <laughs> just chat with your neighbour, just, just give maybe two or three words that you would like to associate with this picture, just very quickly. Uh, he was here recently, wasn't he? He flew over my house on his way to, uh, where was he going? I think he was going to Blenheim Palace. And uh, he flew in and he flew out. Uh, Mr. Trump has been in town. Someone want to give me some words? He's well, a biter. He's a biter? Oh, boom. That was quick. Loving that. Thank you. You mean Mr. Trump, right? Okay, good. And anyone else got some words? 
No way. Yeah, okay, good. Any more? Where's my dummy? Out. He's a child. Now, weird, weird thing is this, right? This photo was put out by the Trump administration. Okay? And a lot of people over here in the UK, we thought the way you think. You know, a child is petulant. Who does he think he is? But a lot of Trump supporters said, good for him. He's standing up against Europe. He's going to refuse to be the world's bank. America first. Good for our president. Isn't that weird? We're looking at the same photo, but we're interpreting it very, very differently. Now, look, the same is true about being a Christian. When you become a Christian, you don't just see certain things differently. Everything is different now. Because of Jesus, because of what he's done for you, because of the Holy Spirit and what he's working in you, because of the gospel and the way it's reformatting your brain, everything is different now. That's what it says in Romans chapter 12. Your mind is being renewed. So even though you and your non-Christian family or friends or neighbours or guys at work, you're looking at the same challenges in the world, you're facing the same stages of life, because of the gospel, because of Jesus, because of the Holy Spirit, everything is different. Does that make sense? Becoming a Christian doesn't just change 10% of your money or 10% of your time. What you do on a Sunday, it changes everything. It's like a system reboot. And I want to apply that to a whole other world. So I'm going to show you in a second another picture. And I'm going to tell you what the world sees when it looks at this picture. And then I've got a little question for you. What do you think God sees? You could call this theology. If theology is a scary word for you, we'll just call it audience participation. But you could call this theology. All right, here's the photo. This is Robert, not, not his real name. In fact, I can't show you Robert's face because Robert is currently in the foster care system. Robert has been waiting to be adopted for most of his life. But he's been left in foster care because no one has come forward to adopt. Which is weird because at the moment there's a lot of people waiting to adopt children. The thing is they don't want children like Robert. Most people coming forward for adoption are coming uh, because of infertility. And look, look, we as a church, I don't just mean Trinity, I mean as a national church, we're not great at standing with and walking through the issue of infertility with people. Sometimes church can be the hardest place to be wrestling with infertility because sometimes we're so family focused, we haven't got enough space or pastoral care for those that are wrestling with this. But when infertility is your driver into adoption, guess what you want? You want a baby. You don't want a five-year-old. You don't want a five-year-old who has learning difficulties. You don't want a five-year-old who has speech delay because of some of the stuff that's happened to him before he came into care. You don't want a learning, you don't want a child who his teacher loves him to bits but admits that sometimes he's hard to handle because he gets frustrated that he can't express himself in the way that he wants. And so Robert is in a little book called Be My Parent. It's a really tough book. It's full of hundreds of profiles of children just like Robert who are waiting and waiting and waiting to be brought home by somebody. But because they are honest about some of the challenges these kids face, all the adopters so far that have seen Robert's profile, and it must be thousands, have turned the page 
and said, Robert's not for me. They've kind of written over him without necessarily saying it out loud, unadoptable, problem child. In fact, someone else's problem child. If he's trouble now at five, imagine what he's going to be like at 15. Do you see that mindset? Does that make sense to you? Now, here's the theology bit. You're going to do it with your neighbor. Uh, I'd love to offer you a prize, but there's just glory and honor at stake. In fact, let's make it competitive. This side of the room versus this side of the room. Up and down, that's fine. Uh, Let's make you Croatia, and uh, why don't you be France, okay? Don't throw the game if you're not a France fan. But try and come up, try and come up just in pairs with three things you think you can say for sure that God sees when he looks at Robert. Does that make sense? And if you're new to church and and you're not sure about this sort of stuff, some of the songs we've been singing this morning might give you some substance to think what you might reckon God would see when he looks at Robert. You haven't got long. I'm going to give you not 90 minutes, but 90 seconds. So off you go. Three things God sees when he looks at Robert. Okay, there's no extra time, there's no golden goal, just 90 seconds. Uh, I'm going to give Croatia the opportunity to open the scoring. Uh, Give me one thing you think we can say for sure that God sees when he looks at Robert. Someone. Oh, 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 just one at a time. Who said the first thing? Yes, what would you say? Potential. That's so powerful, isn't it? You see, a lot of people are looking at Robert and they've written his future off. They've decided because of difficulties in his past, his future is going to be terrible. But that is not a Christian way of looking at anything or anyone. We believe in something called redemption, don't we? Think back to your past. Can you say it was all golden and glittering? All of us here have a story, don't we? Most of us know that our lives before we became Christians were pretty broken. Uh, Maybe there were issues that we were dealing with. There was definitely sin that we were dealing with. And God didn't say, well, because you had a bad start, I've written off your future. God says, I'm going to make something of you, something amazing, something beautiful. That's what God's committed to do to you. And if that's true for me and you, no matter how bad our past was, why can't that be true of Robert too? Now, let's be realistic, though. Some people think, oh, yeah, yeah, if if our family adopted Robert, uh, as long as we did a little bit of um, bedtime reading, uh, maybe maybe we read some good books over them, maybe we pray, uh, then they'll all turn out also completely fine. Well, I'm sorry, that's not how it works. Most of us are still struggling with some of the stuff we were struggling with before we became Christians. God doesn't just zap it all away, does he? But he is committed to walk with us through the stuff that we're wrestling with, isn't he? And so maybe God's calling some of us to think about that for these kids. Great job, Croatia. One to you. France, do you have a response? Is it Mbappe on a super fast run? Anyone got something? Beloved. God loves Robert. Is that that risky to say that? 
I think that's pretty fair enough. You know your Bible, that famous verse. For God so loved middle class white people from good backgrounds. It's not how it goes, is it? Who does God love? God loves the world. Every single human being on this planet, independent of their history, their ethnicity, their gender, their sexuality, even their religion, God loves the world. Now, it doesn't mean that the world has responded to God's love appropriately, but God's disposition towards the world is love. That's true for every single person here, isn't it? God loves you. He's passionate about you. And it calls forth a response from us. If God loves Robert, does that change my relationship to him too? I had a friend who had a, 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 an ugly dog. To be fair, it was an ugly dog. But he had a sign outside his house. He says, love me, love my dog. You can't get to love him without loving his dog. You know, the Bible is the same. If we love God, we will also love our neighbour and our enemy. That means we need to love people like Robert. Everyone is loved by God. I need to love them too. This is good. It can't end on a draw though. So is there another response, Croatia? Have you got anything? He's made in the image of God. That's so good. I'd love to give you two goals for that because that is theologically profound. Look, let me tell you why that matters. Look, on my phone, and you can come and see some of the pictures um, during uh, the seminar we're going to have afterwards. I've probably got 10,000 pictures of my family. Now, you look like a nice bunch, but imagine if I were to show you a picture of my family on my phone and then you were to spit on that picture. I I know, it's Cheltenham. We don't do that kind of thing around here. (laughs) But just imagine that you did. At one level, it doesn't matter because this is a Samsung Galaxy Note 8. (laughs) That is a waterproof phone, up to 10 metres, I believe. So no matter how much saliva you put on my phone, it's all right. No harm done. But let's just imagine you've got kind of hard water around here. You, you have toxic saliva. And it gets into my phone. Well, I mentioned this is an Android phone, didn't I? Well, that means I'm backed up on Google Cloud. So even if you destroy my phone, you ain't touching my pictures. It's all safe. But symbolically, what have you done? You spit on a picture of my family... How does that make me feel? I'm offended that you're treating the image of people that are precious to me so badly. Now, friends, if Robert is made in the image of God, what responsibility does that give us for him? God loves him. God's committed to him. What you do or don't do for Robert and the thousands of children like him in the care system is a reflection of how we feel about God, isn't it? What we do to the image demonstrates how we feel about the one being image. Very profound. Still only one goal. Last chance for an equaliser. Anything else? Yes. Yes. Wow. So good, so good. So Moses was a child who, who was a, he had to be kind of given up. He was a baby in the bulrushes, an orphan in one sense in need, and God provided for him. In fact, if you look throughout the Old Testament particularly, God says he has particular concern for three groups of people. The widow, the orphan, and the stranger. Now, I said to you that God loved Robert and he loves everybody else, but I want to say that God has particular concern for the vulnerable. Now that sounds like favoritism, doesn't it? 
In my house, we have birth kids, and we have adopted kids, and we have foster kids. When it's dinner time, I don't say, hey, vulnerable orphans, you come to dinner first. Um, birth children, you're second, you come to the second course. Of course not. Love all the kids the same, right? So why does God show particular interest for the vulnerable? Uh, any paramedics in the room? Yes, good man. Okay, play with me. Before I get this wrong, you tell me. Imagine there's a scene, right? There's a multiple casualty accident somewhere on the high street. And um, someone driving a Rolls Royce has injured their nose in the accident. Uh, a homeless person is bleeding out on the floor. And a member of Trinity Church uh, was in a bicycle and uh, they were slightly bruised in this encounter. The paramedics turn up. Who do they see first? Paramedic, could you help me? The most seriously injured one. Doesn't matter about their class. Doesn't matter if you know them and they're part of the church. It doesn't matter if they're rich or poor. It's who's in need most. Is that right? That is exactly what God does when he looks at the world. He says, I, I love everybody. Everybody matters. But I'm going to show particular urgent interest in those that are most vulnerable. Those are the ones that are going to get seen first. So that's why Robert is high up on God's agenda. Does that make sense? I'm going to call it a draw, okay? It's because we're Christians and we kind of need to do that. I need to do one last thing with you. I think we're still going to be friends at the end, okay? But I want to read you probably the most controversial passage I ever read anywhere. Trigger alert. If you've got a Bible, you need to follow along. Matthew 25. Hopefully it will sum up some of the things that we're saying, but press them home in a hopefully an, an important way for you. Um, if you want to follow along in the church Bible, there's a few there. Matthew chapter 25. This is Jesus speaking. This is the last parable Jesus speaks before he goes to the cross. And he's, 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 he's often told, we're often told about Jesus that he saves the important bits to last. That's why we get to Matthew 28 and the Great Commission. Well, this is Jesus' last parable and you need to hear it because it has some important things to say about our discipleship, our worship, and our pursuit of justice. Matthew chapter 25. I'll read it to you. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, it's verse 31, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He'll put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Pause for a minute. This is the most explicit parable that Jesus gives about the final judgment. You could argue Luke 16, the parable of uh, the uh, Lazarus and the rich man is pretty explicit. I, I think this is up there because Jesus expresses it even more clearly than he does in Luke 16. What will be the criteria for who gets to be on the left or on the right? And to be honest, if you're new to church, it doesn't matter which side you're sitting on this morning. Um, Jesus can rearrange seating arrangements when the final judgment comes. Verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger. And you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was ill and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry 
and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you, a stranger, and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you, ill or in prison, and go to visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was ill and in prison, and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty, or a stranger, or needing clothes, or ill, or in prison, and did not help you? He will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Can you see why maybe this is the most controversial passage I ever speak on? It's controversial in progressive circles because Jesus is pretty straight about heaven and hell. Now some Christians seem to get really excited talking about hell. There's a guy on Oxford Street who's got a megaphone and all he ever wants to tell anyone is they're going to hell. He he seems to want to scare people into the kingdom. That's not the tone of voice I hear Jesus speaking with. Jesus is speaking out of love to people to make sure they get the right side of what God's doing. Look, seven kids in my house, youngest is 13 months old. Uh, He's amazing, but he breathes like this. Which is... Interesting when he shares a bedroom with me and my wife. My wife says it's kind of comforting because she knows he's breathing. I am having lots of dreams about Darth Vader. What's even more spooky is his birthday, you'll never guess, May the 4th. I'm not even joking, not even joking. Star Wars baby. But look, when this 13 month has been in our lives, we love him to bits. But I've got some strict rules. I warn him because he seems to like to lick the plug sockets. I don't know what, you just give him two seconds, that's where he's gone. I sit him down, I warn him, I talk about the consequences. He's totally ignoring it. (laughs) That's all he's saying. But I love him and therefore I warn him. That's the tone of Jesus here. Not trying to scare you, but asking you to be real about where you stand with God. This passage is also controversial with more conservative Christians because it seems to say How you live matters to God. It seems to say it's not just enough to pray a prayer at an evangelistic event or even, you know, give your life to Jesus at an Alpha course. Although those can be great entry points, ultimately the ultimate test of whether you're in the kingdom or not is not do you turn up at church, have you prayed the prayer, do you sing a lot, do you give 10% of your money? What is the ultimate test that you're in the kingdom? It's how you respond to those that are ultimately in need. Now, some people go, Chris, oh, that sounds dodgy. In fact, I've been told, how about this? Jesus got the gospel wrong. If only Jesus had read more Paul, then maybe he would have been more theologically correct. Give me a break. I am old school. I don't know about you. Have you heard that verse? All scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And that includes this bit and the book of James. It's all good. It's all from God. So what does it mean? 
We are not saved by doing good works. There's no way. If we could have been included into God's family by being a good person, there is no need for what happens in the next two chapters to take place. Jesus dies on the cross for the sins of the world, for your sins, for my sins, for the whole world. There's no way we could have been forgiven by God without his mercy and grace shown to us in Jesus. But once you've received that grace from God, God calls you to pass it on to other people. And if we don't pass it on to other people, God calls into question whether we really received it or not in the first place. What do we say? Forgive us our sins. Thank you, Lord. As we forgive those who sin against us. Freely I've received from you. Freely I will give. Or in Ephesians 2, what does it say? You are not saved by works so that no one can boast. It's a gift of God. It's wonderful. But then in Ephesians 2.10, it says you are Christ's workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works that God has prepared in advance for you to do. In other words, you were not saved by your good works, but you were saved for good works in the world. And Jesus says, come on then, I'll come to you. I'll come to you hidden in the vulnerable people in this city, in our world. I won't make a song and dance about it. I won't turn up with all my glory when I come to the food bank. I won't tell you my real name. But whatever you do for the least of these, you do for me. Or when the street passers are out on the streets late on a, a Friday night or early on a Saturday morning, whichever way you look at it, and you're helping someone that's just had too much and they've had the worst of all days and the worst of all nights and you're just offering comfort and grace. Jesus says, whatever you do for the least of these, you do for me. But that also means kids that are waiting. What do they need? They don't need 10% of your time or your money. They need something more. They need someone to welcome them into their homes and love them as their own for as long as they need it. Chris, I'm asking too much of people. That's nuts, and I agree, it's not for everybody. Our stat is that around the UK, there's around 5,000 children like Robert that are waiting. Not babies, older children, often with a brother or sister. Sometimes those brother and sister get separated because nobody wants the older brother, they want the little sister. Imagine what that does to the older brother. Breaks his heart. The only person he knows in the world that loves him is his little sister, but they don't want him, they want her. We're calling the church to step forward. 5,000 kids like that. On top of that, there's 8,000 foster families short right now. That's a huge number. But of churches like yours and mine, maybe not as big as yours or mine, but churches with a passion for Jesus, we reckon there's at least 15,000. How's your maths? I don't need each of you to adopt 10 children. I just need one new family per church and the rest of the church to wrap around them, give them the support they need, and we can meet the entire need. That's quite doable, isn't it? It's not impossible. And today, as we come to a close, the band's going to come up and kind of help us get ready uh, to respond to God. So, band, why don't you make your way up and you can begin playing. I guess I've got a challenge to you. And there's two sides to this challenge. The first might be that this morning you're hearing bits of the gospel for the first time. You didn't know that God wants you so badly that he would send Jesus to die for you independent of your history, independent of what's happened to you, independent of what you've done, God says, welcome home. 
Because do you know what? God wants to adopt you into his family. That's the gospel. God doesn't want a passing interest in you. He wants to adopt you as his own precious child. And he's going to commit to you for life, for better or for worse. He knows all about you. And he still says, I want you. And I'm going to love you forever. That's the gospel. That's amazing, isn't it? And Jesus died to make that welcome into God's family possible. So in a moment when we uh, come to a time of response, some of you might need to come forward and say, Lord, I want that. I don't just want church. I don't just want a, a distant relationship. I want to be adopted. I want you to be my dad. I want Jesus to be my brother. I want the Holy Spirit to tell me that's all true. And I want to be a part of this church family. That's what you're saying. But for others of us here, God's calling you to step up your engagement when it comes to justice. I know that as a church, you're passionate about justice. I love it. I love the fact that you've been in Micah 6:8 for so long. Act justly, love mercy, walk humbly. To be honest, I don't know a more just way of living than for Christians to either foster or adopt or other Christians to wrap around them. Think about when justice ministry is happening in a fostering or adopting family. It's happening at midnight when the foster baby won't go to sleep because their blood is still full of the drugs that their mother took. It's happening at 4 a.m. when that baby's still awake. It's happening at 7.30 in the morning when you're trying to help a child who doesn't do food because of their past know that breakfast is good and they are welcome around your breakfast table. It happens at 8.30 when you're at the school gate trying to help a new child make some friends in the playground. It happens at 11 o'clock in the morning when the head teacher's called you in because your child is troubling. And you kind of want to say, well, it's not really my child, but actually you think that would betray them. And so you just say, look, I'm doing the best I can. Would you help me, head teacher? That's the life of a foster care. I'm not going to sugarcoat it for you. It's really tough. But I tell you, it's the most challenging and wonderful thing you can do. Now, God's not calling all of us to be foster carers or adoptive parents. I didn't bring a van with me with 10 kids. And uh, if you sign up to support Home for Good regularly, you get a kid and a book. Doesn't work like that. And for major donors, you get three kids. No, it doesn't. That's not how it works. It's a proper process. It's not for all of us. But I think all of us have a part to play. And it could just be you're the kind of person that's going to stand alongside People in this church, I hear there's already a family that's doing this. What would it look for you to stand alongside them and say, we are here for you? We're not just going to give you an extra uh, daffodil on Mother's Day. We're here for you. What can we do to serve? For others of you, maybe it is finance. You want to get alongside our organisation and say, come on, let's do it. What would it say to the nation if the church stepped up and fostered or adopted every child that was waiting? It'd be huge. One last stat before I tell you how to respond. I know that the church cares about the homeless. I know that the church cares about those in prison. And I know the church cares about people trafficking. Let me just chuck some stats at you. Of the prison population, 50% of male prisoners have been in the care system. Of the homeless population, 25% of homeless people have been in care, foster care. Of people that are working in the sex industry, some areas it's 30%, in other areas it's 70% of young girls have been in care and then had nowhere to go and then found themselves on the streets. I think it's brilliant we're doing stuff in prisons and amongst the homeless and amongst the sexually trafficked, but why don't we get involved when they're five years old, like Robert, and they need a family? 
Friends, will you help me? I think the church can do it. Change the lives of these kids. Offer God what he asked for in the first place and change the perception of Christianity in this nation. That's doable. Why don't you stand? Band, help us uh, begin to play and then I'll just tell you how you can respond. Maybe the prayer team wants to come out uh, to the front Um, and we'll do this all together. So um, if you want to come forward and you want to say, look, I want to be adopted into God's family, brilliant. You come and uh, just let the person know that wants to pray for you. That's what you're doing. If the rest of us want to say, Lord, I'm here. I am available to be used by you in any way. I don't know what that means. It might mean I want to be a foster carer. It might mean I want to be a social worker. It might mean I just want to stand alongside others. But we heard this morning that God deserves extravagant praise. That's more than just singing. That's more even than breaking an alabaster jar. That's saying, Jesus, I see you in the most vulnerable of all people and I will do whatever it takes to show you mercy and grace and compassion because I love you, Lord. So if you want to respond, we're not going to draw this out. Make your way to the front. We'll pray for you. Whatever it is God's saying to you this morning, it's been a privilege to be with you. Thank you for your time. And I'll catch you a bit later.